0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit Northwaychurch.com. Well, good to see you this week, Northway family. Hope you're doing well. Glad you're with us. Especially want to welcome our AM fans that are with us this weekend. Few whoops in here, huh? I saw I saw the colors. I saw a little bit of extra worship going on here. Uh, this afternoon from some of our A&M crew, our uh, beloved pastor, Matt Younger, one of our pastors here, was actually at the game last night. And uh, as far as I know, I think he's still on the field right now. Texted me this morning. I'm, I think he's just going to go ahead and stay there until Jesus returns at this point. So he's, he's seen it now. But uh, that's not why we're here. We're here to continue in our study in the book of Romans. So if you have your Bible, I'd, lo- I'd love you for you to turn with me there to Romans chapter 13. So we continue our study here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Just grateful you're with us. If this is your first time, welcome. We are walking through uh, one of those beautiful pieces of scripture, um, and that is the letter of Romans, looking at the good news of Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. and uh, And what Paul has been doing, we've been spending the last couple of weeks in chapters 12 and 13, and we have been looking at Uh, how the very mercy of God, how this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ transforms the life of a believer. And uh, the first 11 chapters of this book, all about what God has done to pour out his love towards us by sending his son Jesus to to take our place um, on the cross, receiving the due penalty of our sin, which was death, that that would be placed on him and that through our faith in Jesus and his sufficient work for us on the cross, that he grants us by faith the gift of righteousness. His His righteousness granted to us by his grace so that we can be forgiven, we can be cleansed of our sin, we can be adopted by God into the family of God as brothers and sisters in Christ, secured in his love for all eternity. And now what Paul does in chapter 12 and following is, then what are the effects of this? What, what now is Does the gospel of Jesus Christ produce in a believer? Where where do we see the fruit manifest here? And what we've seen thus far in the last couple of chapters is how, how this gospel transforms so many facets of our life, first starting with our upward relationship with God, that it transforms our very worship of who God is, that we don't settle for lesser forms of worship. We worship God as the all exalting, worthy of our praise and affection, God of the universe, who has, who has fought through the greatest obstacle we could ever have, which was separation from him and brought about reconciliation. And so we are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but by the renewing of our minds, the power of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the word of God, uh, we are looking more like Jesus more and more each day as we worship and give our lives as an offering to God, but not only there, it also moves from our upward relationship with God, but the gospel also affects us outward as well. How we begin relating with the people around us, namely and starting with the church, how it is that we love one another uh, in light of this, this gospel that has saved us and how we consider one another as not uh, less than us or we're better than somebody else, but we're all on the same footing because the grace of Jesus Christ that's been given to us. All the differences now been brought together and made one in the, in the beauty of the body of Jesus Christ. And so our relationship changes. We take the gifts that God has given us through the Holy Spirit. We, we leverage them to serve one another in love for the building up the body of Christ. But God's love and transformation in us doesn't just stop there in this room. It spills over outward into the world around us upon um, even the very world that is hostile towards us. Uh, even the very enemies of ours that would persecute us, the love of God transforms us to be able to go out and love even our own enemies. Because after all, that's who we were prior to God saving us. We were enemies of God, and yet he stepped into the mire and the brokenness of our life. And he did not count our trespasses against us, but he loved us through Jesus Christ and changed our lives, brought us near. And so how can we, who have been saved by that blood, not go out and extend that love even to our enemies? and we even see that it didn 't even stop there. Last week, we talked about even the the relationship that's changed between us and even the civil authorities that are around us, um, even local government, just the idea that Rome believed that probably the worst of the worst thing that could happen to society was granting these Christians free salvation. And that would lead to licentiousness, that they would take this gift of grace and go abuse it and become the worst citizens in all of Rome. And Paul writes and says, I beg to differ. You don't understand the gospel. This gospel that we've received vertically, it transforms us horizontally, that even we recognize that God has put government in place for a reason, we will serve it as unto the Lord. And so we see that the power of the gospel, the mercy of God that he's given us, transforms every aspect of our life. And what we're gonna see at the end of Romans 13 this week is Paul summarizing all this that we've covered thus far to talk about how it is this gospel transforms our love for our neighbor. And then specifically, how it transforms us to live differently, to live distinctly in the midst of a darkened world as we await the return of Christ. And so we're gonna start here, verse 8 of chapter 13, looking at the importance of how the gospel shapes our love of neighbor. Just scan verses eight through 10, the first part of this section. You see verse eight, the one who loves another. Verse nine, love your neighbor. Verse 10, do no wrong to your neighbor. It's all about the love that the Christian is to have towards our neighbor. Jesus said in John chapter 13, of all the characteristics that you could identify a Christian with, There's one characteristic more than any other that will let the whole world know that you and I are followers of him, and that is our love for one another. Our love for others is what will make this Christian life distinct from anything else to let people know who we serve. Jesus defined, by the way, who our neighbor is that we're to go love Back in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus essentially tells us in that parable that our neighbor is anyone whom the Lord puts in our path that has a need that we can meet in the name of Jesus Christ. It's anybody. So on any given day, God has an assignment for us of somebody in our path that He has put who is in need to be loved the way that God has loved us through Jesus Christ. And so, all these together, the challenge that we find though is that the vast majority of us as the family of God, we struggle to know how to do this well. It's hard to go love somebody that you don't like. It's hard to love somebody that doesn't like you. And it's hard, and in the, in the, throughout church history, we've seen the church struggle, no doubt, in this area of how to love our neighbor well in the way that Christ has loved us. And it's interesting, even when you look in your New Testament at the the various uh, groups of leaders that are listed in the scriptures, um, such as the the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Herodians, these groups that we have in our New Testament, almost all of these groups, if you pay attention, are actually grouped according to how they viewed the family of God was to engage with their neighbor. It's how they interpreted it. To the Pharisees, Think about the word Pharisee. The word Pharisee means separated one. That tells you a lot right there. They felt they needed to be separate from everybody else. They needed to be, they were in the world, but they weren't gonna be of the world. And that's a good thing. The only problem is for the Pharisee is they had separated themselves so much based on their own perception of their performance before God, they placed themselves as superior to all others in righteousness, mistakenly. But that's how they viewed their relationship to everybody else was separated, And there's one group, doesn't get a lot of press in the New Testament, but was around at that time that actually goes a step further than the Pharisees. It was the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of people located in Southern Israel down by the Dead Sea. And they didn't just separate from the rest of their neighbors. They isolated from the rest of their neighbors. They withdrew all the way down to the desert so they could be totally removed from culture. And all they did every single day was translate the scriptures of which we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's one of the works of the Essene community. Um, They had a purpose, but they certainly viewed themselves as totally isolated from the rest of their neighbors. And then there's another group that goes on the extreme opposite end of that spectrum, and that's the Herodians. Uh, The Herodians were those who were loyal to Herod, King Herod, the Herod dynasty, that was appointed leadership over Israel by Rome itself, by Caesar himself, and the Herod dynasty was loyal to Rome. So if you were a Herodian, you were one who was loyal to Rome above and beyond even your own faith. Yes, you could claim Judaism. Yes, you can claim faith in God and say that you are a part of the family of God, but ultimately your loyalty lie with Rome, and your job was to join Rome more than you were to join God. And you have the Herodians. And then you have the Sadducees, which was an interesting group as well, because they too kind of like the Herodians, they wanted to be successful in the eyes of the culture. They wanted to be relevant in the eyes of their neighbors. And so what they chose to do in order to be most relevant is they started dropping doctrines of the faith that the culture didn't like. So if the Greeks didn't like the idea of the Holy Spirit, then let's just get rid of the Holy Spirit. If the Greeks don't like the idea of a resurrected body, then let's just get rid of the doctrine of resurrection. If the the Greeks don't like the idea of angelic beings, let's just denounce them and let's make them to be something else. And so the Sadducees would literally compromise on their own doctrine in order to "quote unquote" love their neighbor. And then you have a whole radical different group, the Zealots. Their M.O. was crazy. Their M.O. was just kill them all. That's their M.O. The Zealots were like the forerunners of social media people. They just loved just to onslaught the culture and let's just. Take it all down. And so you have all these groups that are trying to define what it means to actually love your neighbor. And yet Paul, what he's been showing us all throughout this letter of Romans, is something completely different. What the scriptures point to us in Jesus Christ as altogether different in how he loved us. Jesus, rather than withdrawing from us, rather than separating from us, rather than compromising with us, and rather than seeking to condemn us, Jesus demonstrated his love by drawing near to us without changing an iota of the truth of who he was. And Jesus entered into a broken world. He came and he made his dwelling among us. He lived a perfectly righteous life amongst a world of sinful men and women, and he ultimately laid down his life on a cross for us to demonstrate his love for us. As Romans 5 says, while we were still enemies, he laid down his life for us and that he conquered the grave for us so that we wouldn't just stay stuck in our sin, but would absolutely transform our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Christ from the inside out. This is how he loved us as you read through the New Testament letters, and especially when you get to some of John's letters, the Apostle John, you just get the idea that this guy and many others never got over the fact that they were loved this way by God. That God would so love the world that he would give his only son, that if I might believe in him, he'd grant me everlasting life and never perish. I mean, John never gets over this. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, Rebecca read a part of it just a little bit earlier. John says this, "In, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Earlier in that letter, 1 John 3, 1, John makes the statement, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He never gets over this love. 1 John four nineteen even says that the only reason you and I even know how to love is because he first loved us. If God had never sent Jesus into the world, we would have never had a pure example of what love truly is. The best we could do is take the definitions from the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Essenes and the Sadducees, and that would be our definition of love. But when God enters into the world through his son, Jesus Christ, we see a picture of what true love is. And now we know, and the only reason you and I have an ability or a capability to even love one another, even with a hint of how God has loved us, is because of what Jesus did in being our forerunner to come for us, to die on that cross for us, to give us a new heart in regeneration through faith so that we can love anew the way that he is loved. And so this is where Paul begins this section. Really, it's where he concludes this section In light of the merciful love of God that he has given us in Jesus Christ, we ought to be a people more than anyone else in our culture who goes out of our way to love our neighbors rather than to bring harm to them. So follow along. See this starting in verse 8. Paul says something interesting here. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, real quick, just so you know, this is not a proof text in verse 8, as some have made it to be, uh, that the Bible forbids any of us to ever take loans out. Some people have used this verse to that end. That's the Scripture does not forbid taking loans. However, what the Scripture does do is it cautions us against taking stupid ones against taking loans that are so exuberant that we'll never have the ability to pay them back. And more importantly, what the scripture mandates us is that when we do take out loans, that we pay them back. If one who does not pay back a loan is the one who does not know how to love. Um, I believe it's Psalm 37 that says it's the wicked who takes out loans and does not pay them back. True love will manifest itself in paying back what is owed. But what's interesting is this statement here in verse 8, it's not in a vacuum. It's connected to what uh, we ended with last week in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 13, where Paul says that we're to pay taxes for any of us that owe taxes to Caesar. Anybody that owes taxes to the government, pay your taxes. That is a type of debt that we should pay. But in verse 8, Paul says, so yes, pay all your debts, but just know this. There's one debt out there that you will always owe and you will never be able to pay off. And that is the debt of love. That's the one debt that's inexhaustible. Meaning that there's never gonna be a time in our lives where you and I wake up one morning and go, nailed it. Loved everybody that I needed to love today perfectly. Perfectly. There's just, I don't even know what's left. What do I do next? Everybody's been loved so well by me. That's never gonna be an issue for us. There is always going to be somebody new, some nuance that requires us to step in and demonstrate the love of Christ to until the day that Christ returns or takes us home. That debt will always be there. And in verse nine through 10, he tells us what love is. That this love that we owe to love our neighbor is not just some flighty emotion Love is not just a feeling you feel, but it's an action. It's an actual, intentional, sacrificial act of doing what is right towards another rather than doing them harm. He says in verse 9 and 10, for the commandments, uh, they say this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment. All those commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You remember Jesus back in Matthew 22 was asked um, by some scribes and Pharisees, hey, you know all the laws that are in the Bible. You have the Ten Commandments, and then you also have about 613 total laws that are in the Old Testament. And they say, which one is the most important? And Jesus says, if you want to boil them all down, you can boil them all down, all 613, down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. For he says, the whole law and all the prophets, they hinge on these two things, like a door and a doorframe. The entire Old Testament Hinges on these two things love God, love people. That's what they're about. And in fact, take the Ten Commandments, for example. That's exactly how they're framed. The first four commandments are all about how we're to love God. And then the last four, or the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments, are all about how we love one another. Four commandments that are vertical in nature, six commandments that are horizontal in nature. And so Paul focuses here on the back half, on the horizontal ones. We've dealt in the first 11 chapters with God's love for us and our love for him. Now, how does this move outward towards the love of neighbor? And he's gonna quote here four of those last six of the 10 commandments. And notice, again, they're all horizontal in nature. Do not commit adultery. Adultery is the taking of another person's spouse. Do not murder, that is the taking of an innocent life. Do not steal, that is the taking of someone else's property. Do not covet, that is the taking in your heart something that God has chosen to give to somebody else that you think he got it wrong and should have given it to you. In all of those, all those commands, and Paul just gives four out of the final six, but he says, in all those commands or any like them, he says, they all involve taking from your neighbor, not giving. They all involve harming your neighbor, not loving. If you and I would actually love one another and love our neighbor as God has loved us, then all those commands and the Ten Commandments would be moot. that You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't need the command. If you just we loved like we were supposed to love, you would never murder an innocent life. You would never go out there and take somebody else's spouse. You would never steal property for somebody because that is harming them. That's not loving them. And so Paul says they can all be summed up, and he quotes Leviticus 1918 by loving your neighbor as yourself. You put in a lot of energy, we do, we put in a lot of energy to love our own bodies, to take care, to feed ourselves. If we put that same amount of energy into loving others who are in need, we will fulfill the law, all of that. The, the, and James 2 calls it the royal, royal law of love, that, that love is not replacing God's law, it is fulfilling it. And Jesus, again, in John 13 says, this is what should mark us more than any other characteristic as a follower of Christ. And what's interesting is when you study church history, I love walking through church history, and certainly, as I've already confessed, there are some bad windows we can look into, uh, tragedies in church history past, the baggage that the church has carried as imperfect people saved in the perfect blood of Christ. But sometimes it's beautiful to look back and to see What God has done through his people to transform cultures through the love of Christ manifest through the church. In the first century, when you begin reading about the early church, the first century Christians, man, they loved the poor. They loved the marginalized. And that was so countercultural to everything that was going on in the Greco-Roman days, uh, where people were just cast aside. And the Christians stepped into the gap and loved those whom the rest of the culture would not love. One of the classic examples of this, I've shared this before, uh, was in Ephesus. In Ephesus, they had a major problem, and this was in other Roman cities as well, where young babies were being discarded. Parents, uh, unwanted pregnancies, not wanting the children, would take these newborn babies, and if they didn't want them, they would do one of two things. They would leave the child outside in a field uh, for exposure. To the elements to take its life or they would take the child and they would drop it off in the city square down below as what's called the agora it's a shopping district near the harbors and they would lay the child outside there so that as traders came in they would grab the children they could raise them and put them into the slave trading and this is what happened quite often in fact there is a famous book written before jesus's day um that was epicentered from a doctor in Ephesus who wrote a manual for parents to use on how to identify whether a child was worth keeping or not. Sounds like a book that could be written in the 21st century today. It was written before Jesus and was used for hundreds of years. And then something interesting happened in the first century. As the church, as the after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and most of the church moved uh, west uh, towards um, Ephesus and modern-day Turkey, those babies that were being left out started getting picked up. And those babies were getting picked up by Christians. Christians who understood the worth and the dignity of a human life and said, you know what? The rest of the culture doesn't want them. We'll step in and we'll take them. And started picking up these children because the reason is, how could we not when that's exactly what God did with me? When God stepped in and I was in the greatest orphanage ever was called the world, separated from God under the prince of the power of the air and the darkness of the culture around me, left for exposure. And yet God interceded and showed up and through the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, grabs hold of me, brings me into his family and secures me forever in his love. So how can we who have not have received this vertical mercy. How can we not go give it away like that? It's no wonder why in the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, the New Testament, Paul begins in chapter 1 by talking about their adoption there in Ephesus. And so beautiful picture. And y'all, not just in the first century. I mean, we're still seeing it today. I've been so blessed here recently watching how Northway has moved in our day. You know, just about a month and a half ago, We were horrified by many of the images that we saw of the Afghans in Kabul clinging to the sides of those airplanes on the tarmac as they were headed out, knowing that many of those refugees trying to flee the persecution of their own country were going to make their way to the United States. Many are going to make their way to Texas. And what happened is last Monday, the very first families showed up in Dallas. And it was so awesome to watch Northway Church spring into action. And to see saints within this community, partnered with our brothers and sisters over at Eastside, grabbed hold of one of the very first families that came in and through their generosity helped furnish an entire apartment so that the very first family that showed up had a place to stay with meals to eat and all in the name of Jesus Christ. To say, because that's how our God has served us when we were in need. How can we not serve you when you're in need? a beautiful picture of the church. even heard a story just this past week of a a fire that happened here in Dallas. And one of our, a group of our members was driving by, saw the fire, and again, teamed up with some of our brothers and sisters at Eastside and uh, raised over a thousand dollars to furnish an apartment for somebody that was displaced and in need. I mean, just seeing the love of neighbor because that's what God has done with us. We go back to the tornado and probably could have had every justifiable reason in that moment to focus in on ourselves, but to see our body just scatter the neighborhoods all around us here and serve those, many of those who are disproportionately affected because of the tornado and step in and serve those needs. It's the love of Christ for our neighbors that marks us more than anything else. You know, my prayer for Northway is we'd never lose that. First sermon I ever preached when I came here a few years ago, It was out of uh, Revelation chapter two, the church at Ephesus, that we would be a church that would never lose our first love. We would never forget how God came and so lavishly loved us and rescued us. We would never get over it. We would never lose. We'd never stop having everything that we do stem from the motivation of grace and love that we have received in Jesus Christ. That that be what drives us more than anything else. But my second prayer is that we would take that love and we would go push it out, starting in these walls with one another and then outward to our neighbors here in the city of Dallas and all the way to the ends of the earth. That The the greatest thing that Northway Church would ever be known for is our love for God and our love for one another. They may reject our theology, but they cannot deny the truth of its existence when we love that way. And so... Paul speaks to this. Some some of us, though, are maybe going, man, I don't even know where to start. If you're like me, you wake up some days and all you see on the news and all you hear from other friends and families, all the just pain and hurt and the needs are everywhere. And it's so overwhelming that you kind of get paralysis of analysis where there's so much need that you end up serving none of it. And I think one of a few things that we can do to, to help step into some intentionality in this area is number one, how about we just start with the one need that is right in front of us? You don't have to solve, every Northway doesn't have to solve every single need that CNN and, and, uh, and the news puts on in front of us or social media throws up in front of us or even that others in the city, we can just start with the one need that God has sovereignly placed within our path both individually and even corporately as a church. And we can step in and address that one need. And I think part of this, I've said this a few weeks ago, we've got to slow down if we're really going to love the way that Jesus loved. There has to be a counter a counter catechesis to the, to the story and the narrative of Dallas, Texas, which is so fast paced, so keeping up with the Joneses that all of us are just doing one thing after another, after another, after another. And not only do we have not enough time to discern what needs might actually be out there, we don't have the space to actually step in and do anything with them. So there's gotta be a slow down pace. Zach Lynn was so good to point out a quote by John Mark Comer that simply said, hurry is not... Compatible with love. We've got to leverage the kind of rhythms that are conducive to loving the way that Christ has called us to love. And that's me just preaching to myself. You can jump in if you want to with me on that one. But we need to to take the gifts and the passions that we've been given, we need to go leverage those for the good of others. Um, If you want some low hanging fruit opportunity to get equipped in this area, uh, I would invite you on Saturday, October 23rd, just here in a couple of weeks. Join us here at Northway for a missions-equipping opportunity on how to love our city well. We're going to have folks like Adam Griffin, pastor at Eastside. We're going um, to have Josh Geiger, who's over at Casa del Lago. A um, couple of our partners at the Source who are involved for life, um, who are going to just put before us some of the, the most critical needs that are in our particular area in Dallas that are just low-hanging fruits opportunity for us to have an opportunity to step in and love our neighbors well. So if you're looking for a space and an opportunity to get some clarity on that, man, just come show up on, on, the t- on the 23rd of October, and we would love to walk you in through that. But most importantly, y'all, we just got to always make sure we never get out from underneath the fountain of God's love for us. The best motivation for how to love a neighbor well is to get downwind of ourselves and remind ourselves of how well God has loved us well. When you receive God's love and grace vertically, you will be filled and fueled to go love horizontally. But you cannot love people without first understanding and receiving the love from God that he's given us. Well, Paul pivots here. In verse 11, he switches gears a little bit, and he's going to move from how it is we love our neighbor, to how it is uh, we understand the urgency that is in front of us to to live righteously on mission in light of Christ's impending return. And uh, in verses 11, 14, Paul's gonna, he's gonna bring some sobriety and some urgency to this kind of distinct loving and living through an illustration that would have been really commonly known in any city underneath the Roman Empire, and Paul's going to use some language in verse 11 through 14. Just want to give you some background so you can, and we're going to read through it and you'll see it. Uh, it has everything to do with what you would have witnessed in the life of an average Roman soldier that was around you in whatever city you were in under the Roman Empire. See, the average Roman soldier um, was fairly young when they were drafted or enlisted into the Roman army. And uh, they're always going out to battle. The Roman Empire was so vast, and they're constantly waging war against surrounding nations in order to protect both the Roman emperor and, and the uh, Roman empire and its citizens therein. The sovereignty and the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that was guarded in that day. And so the Roman soldiers were key to this. And it was every Roman soldier's responsibility that they were gonna lay down their life if they had to uh, for the sake of the emperor and the empire. And so to that end, every Roman soldier had to be properly trained, they had to be properly armed, and they always had to be on alert, always on the ready for when they're called into battle. Now, oftentimes, and what many historians have shown, is that Whenever a Roman soldier or a unit of Roman soldiers knew that they were going to go to battle the next day, they always knew that the chances of them losing their life would be great. So the night before battle, what many in the Roman armies would do, many soldiers, is they would throw parties all night long under the cover of darkness. And what they would do is they would engage in drinking contests with other Roman soldiers to see who could outdrink the other until they just passed out, intoxicated. They engaged in sexual immorality um, all throughout that town and that little village that they were uh, posted up in. And this would go on all night long. And uh, But every Roman soldier knew at some point dawn was going to come. And when dawn broke through, just before dawn, there would be a bugle that would sound. And that was key for the for the Roman soldier to wake up And the Roman soldier would wake up probably only after a couple hours of sleep after partying all night long. And that Roman soldier would have to quickly take off their party clothes that they fell asleep in and passed out in from the night before. And quickly they would have to put on their armor for it was time to go to battle. That imagery was all over Rome. Any recipient of this letter to the church at Rome would have seen this behavior out in the open wherever they were within Rome. And so drawing from that imagery, Paul's going to apply that sobriety and that urgency to the church and the spiritual mission that we've been given in light of Christ's coming return. So I'm gonna read this entire few verses here, 11 through 14, and just feel the imagery against this. Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and let's put on the armor of light. Let us us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, But let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul says to the Christian, you know the time. You know the time. And here's why this is important. There's two major Greek words for time that are used in the New Testament. One of those is chronos, which we get the term chronology from. And it's more of a sequence of time. 1 p.m., 2 p.m., 3 p.m. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's just straight linear chronology, sequence of time. It's not the word that's used here. Paul says, you know the kairos. Kairos was about a arc of time. It's about like a season or a time period. And this is Paul going, listen, the rest of the world lives according to a different clock. The rest of the world apart from Christ All they can think about is 1 p.m., 2 p.m., 3 p.m. All they can think about is what's right in front of them, how to live for this moment, feed their flesh, fulfill their cravings the best they can. That's all they think about. But you, oh Christian, who have been plucked from that world and redeemed by Jesus Christ, oh, you know the time. You know the arc, the greater story of the days in which we live you understand the grand narrative of God of who he is and what he is up to in this world. You understand that there is a purpose for you, a mission for you between the cross and the crown, between the cross when Jesus came to humbly lay his life down on a cross to save and redeem us. And that future day when Jesus will return, not just humbly to seek and to save, but triumphantly and victoriously to judge. And so you find yourself, we find ourselves right in that middle between the cross and the crown in this day, right awaiting Christ's return. And by the way, the dawn of Christ's return is actually nearer today than when we first believed. Is that not true? Every day that you wake up, we're a day closer to Jesus's return. And this is 2000 years after this is written. So this generation certainly is way closer to Christ's return than ever before. And so you know the time. You know the time. And so Paul is saying, in this time period, we are to throw off these deeds of darkness. We're to wake up, he's gonna say here in just a moment. When Paul talks about darkness here, uh, Paul is using the idea of darkness in reference to two primary things that happen in darkness. Uh, There's two main things that people do under the cover of night. One is they sleep, and two is they sin. And this is common even in our day as well. Paul says the world around us is right now steeped in a spiritual darkness. They are spiritually asleep. They are desensitized to who God is. They uh, have no idea of their need for salvation. They have no idea of the judgment that is about to come upon them. And they have no idea of the rescue that has been made available to them through Jesus Christ. They are asleep asleep. And when people are asleep in that kind of darkness, typically what's happened is they are given over or enslaved to their own sin, meaning they're not thinking about how to serve any kingdom more glorious than their own. All they're thinking about is how to fulfill their own cravings of their own flesh. And that's what happens under the cover of darkness. Why is it that most crime tends to happen at night rather than the day? Why is there more theft? Car break-ins, house break-ins, homicides. Why do most of those happen under the cover of darkness in our culture rather than daytime? It's because people feel like there's no accountability. They can get away with what is unseen by the rest of the world. And spiritually speaking, Paul sees the same thing. Apart from Jesus Christ, when you're lulled into spiritual sleep, you, you think there's no consequences to any of our sins. That there's no God who sees what's going on. And so we just engage in the lusts of our flesh. And Paul lists many of these lusts. This is an exhaustive list, but the idea of orgies, and long, by the way, long before orgies were, uh, had sexual connotations to them, orgies were just riotous parties that were thrown in the streets. Another word that's translated here is carousing. Just people would go out with torches on parades in the middle of the night and just cause trouble. And part of what is going on there, he defines as drunkenness, which is intoxication completely inebriated, out of control. There's nothing leading you other than the liquor that's in you. uh, Sexual immorality, the fornication that exists in those climates. Sensuality is the idea of total unbridled lust for anything. Just whatever your senses want, you just go for it to please with no shame whatsoever. And then He talks about quarreling, quarreling is strife. It's it's antagonistic contending with another person for dominance and power over them. And jealousy is the the equal partner to quarreling because jealousy is that envy that fuels that strife oftentimes for, for wanting what somebody else has. And that's not an exhaustive list, but this is a sampling of the deeds of the flesh that happen under darkness. It's not the fruit of the Spirit that comes by being a child of light. And these things that Paul describes, they appear to be the exact opposite, by the way, of what it means to love our neighbor, according to verse 9. So Paul is saying, not only is this not true of us anymore, we are not children of darkness anymore. These things are not to be associated with us because of our new identity that's in Christ. But we also know that Christ is going to return soon. The dawn of is just ahead of the darkest part of the night. And right now, in light of Christ's return, knowing that bugle is about to sound, know that we are to be dressed and ready. And Paul gives three exhortations, and this is our three exhortations, which is wake up, take off, and put on. Wake up, take off, and put on. Wake up, you and I are not like the rest of the world. We've been redeemed for something greater. So don't be lulled into sleep and spiritual apathy. Don't be desensitized to what the world is indoctrinating with us all around us that we no longer can even see or hear from the voice of God and to see what he is up to and our role to be played in it. And listen, I know life is hard. We have overwhelmed with all kinds of activities and responsibilities and pressures and struggles and things that are juggling in our life right now, but oh, redeemed ones of God, understand and let us not forget why we are here, why we are on planet earth. Christ is returning. He's coming back. People are perishing. And we have been given the unspeakable opportunity to bear witness in the world of the good news of Jesus Christ, to bear his image of love and truth, of salt and light into a dark and dulled world that so desperately needs Jesus. And you can feel Paul's sense of urgency here in his words for this mission that we've been called to fulfill. So wake up, but don't just wake up. Once you wake up, you have to take off now. And he's gonna use garment or uniform language here. The fact is, if dawn is about to break, if Christ is indeed returning, and we know what our mission is on planet Earth, then like a good soldier, it's time to get those old PJs off, y'all. Those party pajamas that we carried before, that's not us anymore. We have we have been given righteousness in Christ. And so take off that old way of living. This is repentance language. This is purging language. This is cleansing language. Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, But now you are light in the world. So walk as children of light. Paul would also say in Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul's saying, throw off those dirty garments. Don't wear that jersey anymore. That ain't your team anymore, y'all. Those old clothes, that's another team. You've been traded. You're on a new team now. And so therefore, put on the new jerseys. Put on What he says here is the light of Christ and his righteousness. And here's the beauty of Christ's righteousness. It happens in two ways, as we've seen in Romans. One is there is such thing as positional righteousness. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, you have been clothed by grace in the righteousness of Christ. God does not look upon you and see your sin and your filth. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, which is sufficient for you. You are in him now. And so you are cleansed, you are forgiven, you are righteous in Christ positionally. But we still see there are commands for it, meaning there's a practical side to righteousness too. We talked about this earlier in Romans chapter 6, when we talked about prior to Jesus, we were in citizens of sin country, and King sin ruled and reigned over us, and we had to obey all of his beckoned commands We were slaves to sin until Jesus comes in, substitutes for us and adopts us and changes our residency, brings us from sin country into Graceland. Except it ain't King Elvis running this place, it's King Jesus running this place and his grace for us. And we've been transformed. We have a new address, we have new uniforms. We are a new team over here with a new coach in this thing. But you know the reality is that sin country still exists and every now and then calls us up on the phone and entices us to come back over. Oh, your residence doesn't change. You're you're permanently a citizen and resident over here. But we're tempted to go back and visit. We're tempted to put on that old uniform. We're tempted to look like the rest of the world. And Paul says, wake up. That's not who you are. It's not the time we're in. Wake up and put on Christ. Specifically here, armor of Christ. And and John Piper says it rightly. This is is wartime mentality. This is not peacetime mentality. Peacetime mentality is when you have no concerns. Everything's going great. Nothing's hostile in the world. You can play. You can sleep. It's like staying at an all-inclusive resort in Cancun. The only thing you have to think about is when you're getting your next meal. That's all that's going on in peacetime mentality. Y'all, that day is coming. That day is not right now. We are in wartime mentality. There is a battle going on. And so even as Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, put on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on your gospel shoes of peace, put on your shield of faith, put on your helmet of salvation, put on the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and let's go to war because the dawn is right in here. It's almost here, y'all. So let's go fulfill our mission. In other words, adorn yourself with Jesus because that's who you are in him. There's uh, an illustration I'll close here um, with. I've shared it before here, I'm sure, but it is most appropriate in this text right here. And that is uh, from the band of brothers. Y'all seen, anybody seen the band of brothers? Anybody? Y'all cannot grow in righteousness if you do not go see the band of brothers right now, right? That's your assignment. Uh, There's several episodes in it, and you're following this one unit um, this one company in World War II around from battle to battle to battle. And you're seeing them on mission. You're seeing these guys in their brotherhood and they're banding together for the sake of this mission and, and they're just, they're persevering. But something happens, and this is Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, they put this together in episode nine. It's called Why We Fight. And something crazy happens in this episode, different than the previous eight. These guys go into a city, and there's no enemy there for the first time. There's nobody to drive back. They've already left. And so these guys are like, wow, we've never experienced this. We don't have to actually have a fight right now. And you see peacetime mentality take over them. They shed their clothes. They, they shed their armor. They shed their, their weapons. And all of a sudden, you see these guys start stooping to levels that you've never seen them do before. They go into a bar they break into a bar they start stealing all the liquor they start getting hammered just passed out drunk couple guys try to commit a sexual assault against a woman in a barn and you're 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 meant to watch this and be shocked going what are you doing and 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 Spielberg is so brilliant in this because the very one of the last scenes in it Um, None of y'all seen it anyways, like 20 years after it's made. I'm not not spoiling anything here, all right? Um, But one of the last scenes is they have a scouting trip that leaves that city, leaves all that carousing that's going on there, and they head up and they go up over this hill and they see something that they have never seen before. It is a barbed wire fence with emaciated bodies on the other side of it looking at them, pleading for rescue. It's a concentration camp. These guys had never seen it before. they have been fighting this whole war and had never seen one of these. And it's in that moment that they realize why they fight. They realize why they have been battling this war. It's for this. And those same guys who moments earlier were in total drunken stupor, They sober up, they go back down, they put their battle clothes back on, grab their weapons, and they get back to mission. And in many ways, I think Spielberg just set that up, not even knowing his Bible, not even knowing Romans 13, he set that whole thing up. Because it's a picture of what happens when we get off mission, y'all. When we forget what time we're in, and we get desensitized to God, and we start becoming sensitized to social media and culture and the world around us and we start giving into the cravings of our flesh and next thing you know, you can't tell us apart from anybody else in the world. But we were meant to live different. You and I are to wake up. We are to take off and we are to put on. I'm gonna read you from Ephesians chapter five. Paul summarizes everything that we've been talking about even more explicitly in this one passage to the Ephesians when he says these words, Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. So walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Don't live like you don't know, because you do know making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul's exhortation is that we will wake up, we would take off and put on. We would make no provision for the flesh. Don't spend our days seeing how close we can get to sin by avoiding it. Flee from immorality and stay on mission and take the love of Christ that has been given to us and let's go give it to our neighbors who so desperately need the love of Jesus Christ and bring them into saving relationship of Jesus Christ just like you and I were. Amen? That's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder in this text of the perfect love in Jesus Christ that we have been given. Oh God, how much you have given us in Jesus. Help us to never get over it. Just like John, see what love the Father has lavished upon us that we may become children of God. Oh God, help us to never get over that and to take that love and go give it away. Starting in this room, bleeding over to our neighbors around us wherever there may be need and help us to live distinctly always battle ready for knowing that the dawn is closer to us than when we first believed. And we pray this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.